Hello and welcome to the 50th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. Tonight, I will be discussing entrepreneurship with Ben Walker. It has been some time since my last episode, and I apologize to my faithful listeners for my absence, but other matters needed to be tended to. So thank you for your continued support. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, Ben. Hi, Adam. And uh, I suppose we can get right to the meat of the matter. Spark the impetus that drove you away from a steady paycheck and a regular job to start your own company. Ah, Adam, that's a good question. I, I'm not positive it was more, a, it was a spark. It was more of, um, I don't get along well with others, especially people telling me what to do. So <laughs> I, I had to give it a go because I, I couldn't just sit idly by and, and watch you know, my bosses and owners of companies do things that I didn't necessarily agree with. So I, I had to go on my own. It was inevitable. Otherwise, I'd probably be just hating life, sitting in a cube somewhere, not liking anything. So corporate America steadily ate away at your soul until you had to go and set yeah. up your own company. Yeah, that's that. And I really wanted into the healthcare industry and was having difficulty getting a job in healthcare because I had no experience. I had done mortgages in the past and had a real estate license and that doesn't correlate well with the healthcare industry. So it was a combination of both. I didn't like my job. I didn't like my boss. I didn't like how my bosses did things, how people got laid off. It just wasn't for me. Fair enough. I can definitely agree with all of those points. I was curious what drew you to the healthcare industry exactly. It was the fact that the baby boom generation was going to need uh, a lot of healthcare, and that was about to come to fruition soon. Uh, and the few healthcare things I I did while researching uh, where I wanted to go next. Everyone dressed well, everyone spoke well, everyone was nice to each other. It didn't seem uh, like my previous jobs doing mortgages. It was more relationship building than transactional. And uh, that appealed to me a lot. Then you do enjoy working with people, just not for them. Yes. Um, with people, yes, but yeah, like you said, not for them. Now, I'm not really familiar with transcription services or how that industry works. What made you decide to do that? Uh, that was coincidence that I was eating dinner with my parents uh, about 11 years ago, 
in Omaha, where I'm from, and they were talking about a friend of theirs that was starting a medical transcription company. And I just said, I want in. I want into whatever that guy, whoever you're talking about, I want to work for that guy. And they said, well, you don't even know him. And he hasn't started the company yet. And I said, I don't care. If he starts a medical company, I want in. I don't care if it's selling, you know, toothpicks to hospitals. I want to do it. So that's how they, I kind of bought my way in. Well, I didn't kind of, I did. I bought 10% of the company and we started it probably six months after that first conversation at dinner. And this is a sort of familiar pattern. I'm thinking of some of the old rags to riches stories. Back years ago, you had this burning desire to do something and you went ahead and did it. Yeah, it also was kind of a matter of, of survival. I couldn't continue just sitting there and watching all these things happen. The other people were making decisions and you're like, well, why don't we do this? Or how come we did it like this? And yeah, I, I had to for my own sanity. So you find the burden of decision-making as CEO a little less cumbersome than the burden of working for someone else. Yes, because if it's wrong, it's my fault and I can take responsibility and fix it. If someone else makes the decision and I sit there and I watch and I know they're doing the wrong thing and I try to tell them and they won't listen and then they still go sideways and then they act like nothing happened or it wasn't their fault and that was annoying. Absolutely. It's uh, corporate bureaucracy is as bad as any other kind. Oh, yes. Yeah, it is. And that's why we have Dilbert comics. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> when I was reading up on you, there was something that really caught my eye, which is that you sent, and I assume still send, pitches to prospective clients first thing in the morning, or in a way that they will find them first thing in the morning. Yeah, that's intentional because your brain is is more productive, productive and more active in the morning as opposed to in the afternoon or evening. You're firing on all cylinders in the morning. Mm. Now we don't want to catch people during the four o'clock sugar slump. Yeah, they'll glance at your email and kind of, no, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. And then tomorrow they got 50 more emails in front of yours. And you may get lost in the mix. That's been my experience. And we've kind of experimented with it too. I also like it when I get emails in the morning as opposed to 2.30 in the afternoon when I've got a meeting at 2.45. I just came off an hour meeting. I've got another one at four. You know, it's like all those things start to stack up and then you're like, I can't keep up. Exactly, or worse yet, at five or six o'clock at night when you're trying to wind down, but that kind of comes with the territory of doing business internationally. Oh yeah, that's for sure. We, although we do work with some folks in India, um, we know that they stop at 11 a.m. our time. 
So after that, we're good. But they're up all night. Well, that is extremely courteous of them. It is. We've got a good working relationship with them. Fantastic. And I think the question that most everyone wants to hear, especially in this day and age, is broadly speaking, how do you draw attention to yourself, or in this case, to your company? It's a few different channels. We do a lot of public relations, and then underneath public relations, there's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, podcasts, um, guest authoring on Inc. Magazine or Entrepreneur. Uh, we do quite a bit of that, actually, to get the word out. And it is actually getting attention for me, which indirectly gets attention for the company. I used to do, let's get the attention on transcription outsourcing. And that didn't produce as much because there was no face or person. Once I started being the face of the company, we started getting more clients because it, it attached the human element to the company. Honestly, I'd prefer that the attention go to transcription outsourcing because transcription outsourcing is much bigger than me. Unfortunately, that's not what works well. So yeah, it's a lot of public relations. You don't think you deserve your own personality cult? I <laughs> no, that's not why I do it. Uh, I just, I, you know, I used to sit in the back of the classroom and kind of not, I didn't want the attention focused on me. <laughs> but it sounds like in order to have a successful company, you need a few dynamic personalities there. That's 100% right. Yes, you have to. There has to be a human element attached with it. Otherwise, they can't relate. People don't get it. They can't just see a logo and be like, oh, that's, I feel good about that. Which I suppose, I mean, besides bringing up an image of Steve Ballmer just going bananas at a Windows 98 party, it also brings to mind my question about optimizing sales strategy, which kind of sounds like this vague thing that executives throw around at board meetings, but clearly, since you're doing well, it must have some exact or fairly exact meaning to you and to transcription outsourcing. It, for some of our sales, it does. We do a lot of search engine optimization, which is kind of part of optimizing the sales strategy. And we also reply to requests for proposals from government entities quite a bit. And we've gotten pretty good at doing that through trial and error and, and literally learning from the mistakes you make in the past and asking questions of the purchasing people or procurement people at the different government entities and learning. You can't just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and hope it sticks. Well, I guess you can do that. It, I, we don't, but you, we take very deliberate paths when we see an RFP that we like, and it seems to work for us. So you take a sort of Kaizen continuous improvement approach to finding potential clients. Yes, because if you're not learning, 
then you might as well just throw in the towel and go work for somebody else. I mean, it, we don't have that luxury of people just coming to us left and right. Hey, we want to use your company. Yeah, that's maybe someday, but not right now. So it's required, obviously, any startup or most any startup, unless you happen to have a lot of connections from birth, requires extremely aggressive marketing. So I'm sort of curious about how you got from the beginning to where you are now. Once I learned that public, public relations was extremely important, that helped propel us quite a bit. I, we were doing medical conferences all over the state of Colorado and I started going out to other states and larger um, entities that host events in Orlando and Miami and Nashville and Dallas and you know, those conferences were awesome. They were a lot of fun. It was a lot of you know highly educated people having good conversations. Then it kind of started to dry up and going to the conferences, the return on investment literally went to zero. So we had to figure out a new way to get clients. And that was through public relations and search engine optimization, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and getting a much broader audience than one conference at one event in Miami. And that's something I've heard from more than a few entrepreneurs is that initially they sort of discount or discard the value of public relations and marketing. They sort of assume that if they have a good service or a good product that somehow it will sell itself. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen because we have a very good service and we have industry leading customer service and it still doesn't get us business because they don't know about us. They can't work with us. You know, I mean, right. we, get, we, we get referrals, you know, we'll get a law enforcement agency in Iowa and they'll start using us and then they'll tell the neighboring county or then they'll tell the judicial system in their county and we'll get calls from them. But I, it might take a hundred years to grow doing that. So word of mouth is obsolete. Uh, in our experience, it hasn't helped nearly as much as doing the activities that we do on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, the guest authoring, you know, sharing the different articles that we write or that we're quoted in. We share them all over the place and, you know, people find us that way. Word of mouth, I mean... It's weird. We'll get referred to, let's say, the Denver Police Department. We'll find out from the Aurora Police Department that we're working with them and they'll call us and we'll have conversations for months and then nothing. Then I'll get a call six months later from someone in the records division at Denver Police Department and they'll say, oh, we want to give you guys a try. And I say, oh, yeah, I was talking to Sally six months ago and she's like, who's Sally? I'm like, well, the woman that works in records on, you know, 
20th Street. She's like, oh, I don't work with her. I don't know who that is. Like, what? You know, they found us through Google the second time. You know, it, they did a search, and there we were, and that's why they called us. I'm like, man, okay. So you guys don't talk to each other, and yeah. I mean, it is easier just to Google something than to try to remember who told you what last December. It is, and it's happened so many times. I can't tell you. I, I met a sheriff at the National Sheriff's Association annual conference a couple summers ago, and three months later, we get a call from this sheriff's office in Louisiana. Or They're actually called parishes down there, but anyway and i said oh i met sheriff thompson at the conference in charlotte three months ago and the woman said oh, i don't know what you're talking about i just found you on google and i'm like wait a second sheriff thompson didn't give you my card or you haven't seen my notepads or pens floating around your offices and she's like no i just googled it and you came up so that's why i called i mean that was that was kind of disappointing those conferences cost a lot of money <laughs> Yeah, yes, they do. I had probably a half-hour conversation with that sheriff, too. Like, I still remember what he looks like. And, yeah, he didn't pass along my info. It's kind of depressing. Well, maybe that story will force some people to reconsider their valuations I would hope it does, but you know, that's the way it goes. People, and now we're so busy with so much stuff that you can't, we're bombarded with messages all day, every day from different yeah, angles. I, I think people who, maybe folks who don't use social media on a regular basis, don't realize how difficult it is to get the signal through the noise. Yeah, I agree. It, you've got to be unique and differentiate yourself somehow without being too, you know, outlandish or, or, you know, we, we're apolitical because, you know, we work with prosecutor's office and the defender, the public defenders. And, you know, you don't want to mess with either one of those. And yeah. So what does a typical day look like for you? Um, there's a lot of phone calls back and forth with prospects or current clients that maybe they need to add some new investigators or let's say it's NYU in Manhattan. They want to add a new research department. We transcribe a lot for universities that conduct research. They'll do focus groups and interviews. And if they, if some new research department wants to start using us, so it's a lot of things like that. Um, most of it is outreach of some kind. We're reaching out, or I am in particular, to keep getting the word out that we're here, we're available, we like new clients. We Because we do a lot of LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, guest authoring, there's a lot of reading and a lot of editing going on too, to make sure what is disseminated that has our name and my name is accurate. And I suppose it pays to be an English major. 
sometimes. Uh, it does. I have one in my office, and she's very good at doing uh, edits for our articles and web pages and blogs. She, because she is an English major, she can get it right. She's really good at it. This episode is brought to you by Nutrition Hub, your number one resource for brain health. Find out about Mastermind, the world's purest nootropic. Links to both are included in the blog post. Are there ways that you have thought about coping with possible competition from electronic transcription services or maybe automatizing parts of your own? We're dabbling with a little of that now. So that's one of the reasons we diversified into law enforcement, legal, academic transcription was because of doctors using digital records they don't dictate nearly as much as they used to. They point and click, and then they'll use a voice recognition system that fills in some of the boxes for them. That's, yeah, it, it, most of our clients need 100%. Or, well, we can't guarantee 100, but we'll guarantee 99% accuracy. The clients we work with, they need that, and they don't have time to do their own editing because voice recognition is maybe 80% accurate, so you've still got to edit 20% of it. Our clients that we work with don't like doing the editing. So those are the, the people that we like working with, obviously, because they want our services. They need 99% accurate documents to submit to a court or to use in a law enforcement um, engagement of some kind. Maybe they need a search warrant or maybe they're going to prosecute somebody. So they have to have perfect. Then there are the people that use the voice recognition. They don't need perfect because what they're using it for. They may be typing a paper for college or taking notes from a board meeting they just attended. And it doesn't need to be accurate. It just needs to be close. So yes and no. Editing takes just as long as us typing it from scratch when it's a single person narrative. Voice recognition with two or more people is not even close. If it's 70%, I'd be surprised. I've seen a few. Uh, Google has a beta version out that they are letting people use selectively, or they're being selective about who's using it. Same with Microsoft, same with Amazon. They're all trying it. We may try to incorporate it to see if we can do the edits faster. Because if you have four people in a focus group, that can take a considerable amount of time if they're all talking. If they talk over each other, you're not sure if it's Bill speaking or Bob speaking. That editing, we're not, we haven't been able to play with it yet. So it's not that we wouldn't try it, because I would if we could go faster. If it would help us, you know, let's say a four hour focus group with four people is going to take us anywhere from 12 to 16 hours to transcribe one person. If a computer can spit something out that's 85% accurate in you know three minutes for a four hour audio, and then it takes us two hours to edit it, that just cut our time in half. So yes, or well, and I guess way more than half, cut it down considerably. Um, 
I would do it. We just haven't, like I said, we haven't gotten to play with it yet. All things in time. Yeah, I. It's going to be hard, I think, for the computer to really be able to differentiate. It can't even tell a man from a woman right now. So that's true. Mm-hmm. I think it could be a while. It will. I know. AI experts tend to be overly enthusiastic about their creations. The Perceptron back in the 1970s was supposed to have the intelligence of a human being, but that obviously didn't work out. Yeah. No, it didn't. And, I, you know, obviously I'm biased because we do transcription and we actually have humans, but... It just, they've been saying voice recognition is the next thing since the 70s. And it <laughs> it's really hasn't, I, I, and I've talked to people that worked at Philips, which is now part of Nuance, which is the biggest voice recognition company in the world. It's billions of dollars. He said it may be since the 70s when he was working at Philips that it's maybe gotten 5% better. Like, that's not very much in 40 years and the computing power we have now. I don't know. Maybe I'm too biased to be giving an opinion on this. I'm not sure. I mean, at least you recognize your bias, and that's the first step. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there are always unforeseen breakthroughs, but if all things remain more or less the same, I would guess that transcriptionists will have careers for a few more decades, perhaps with computer assistance, but they'll still be needed. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times. Now with electronic medical record systems in virtually every doctor's office and hospital there is in the U.S., without having a second pair of eyes, it's... There's a lot of mistakes now in, in your medical chart that you don't even know of. Because before when a doctor would dictate and a transcriptionist would be listening and they'd say, wait a second, he's not talking about Adam. Adam doesn't have, he's never broken his left arm. So the person would literally stop, go to the doctor and say, listen, you dictated that Adam broke his left arm. Like, I saw Adam in the office the other day. He didn't have a broken left arm. He had a broken right leg. Like, but they double-check it. And it was nice to have someone double-check it. It was another set of ears and brain to listen and catch. I mean, that's kind of a major. Doctors wouldn't make a mistake like I just gave, like left arm versus right leg. But you get what I mean. Like, they could say five milligrams, and they meant to say 50. Or they say 50, and they really meant five. And they're busy. They got another patient they need to see. They're calling in a prescription for somebody else. You know, a nurse is yelling from down the hall. All these things are coming at them. And that, that transcriptionist was like kind of their fail safe. They don't have that now. So I don't know. Well, now I just feel so much more comfortable going to the doctor. (laughs) I have, I had literally told my old primary care physician, I said, will you please just get up? And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's painful to watch you try to type. So 
how about I sit there and you tell me what to type and I'll type it in here because I want to make sure my chart's right. Heading back to the more personal sphere, is there a particular mindset you try to cultivate to deal with the ups and downs of owning a business? Um, yeah, there's a couple things I always tell myself. It could, it could definitely be worse. You know, we live in the best country in the world with the most opportunity, you know, air conditioning running 24 seven during the summer and heat during the winter and cars and snow plowed roads. And every, we have it pretty easy. And to think that, you know, and to complain would, it's kind of, nonsense when you think about it given the fact that we live in the united states and if it were easy everyone would do it it's not easy owning your own company there are so many moving parts and you may lose a big client tomorrow and not know it and not be prepared yeah it's if it were easy everyone would do it and it's not easy so not everyone does it gratitude is a powerful thing it is um and yeah, it, I also kind of like the risk-taking involved with owning your own business. You get to make the decisions, and if you want to gamble on something like, oh, let's go hire these three people, or we're not sure about this one, but we're going to do it anyway, or let's strike a deal with this company because you know, I think it could pay off in the long run. You know, It's wheeling and dealing, and it can be fun sometimes. Absolutely. It's like playing a game. It is. There's an art to hiring people. How do you go about it? Um, you know, I've that has evolved for me over the years. I, I used to do a lot of the interviewing myself. Now I bring in some other folks to interview also to see if they're seeing the same things or if they're seeing something I'm not. I also verify now references very thoroughly because I've had some people not be totally truthful in the past and it burnt me. Now we trust but verify. <laughs> which we didn't do in the past. <laughs> well, how many employees altogether do you have? There's four employees, FTE, full-time employees, FTEs, and approximately 40 independent contractors in the U.S. and another 60 in India or so. And we give everyone, including the people, the full-time employees, take an English test a grammar test and two different transcription tests to make sure that they're well-rounded and they know the difference between the there, there and there. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I mean, um, and there are some other uh, homonyms or soundalikes that, that come up in technology that people, we need to know that they may not know which weekly to use, but given the context of what the paragraph's about, they should look it up. And if they look it up, they'll get the right answer. 
We want to know that our people are willing to take the extra time to look something up to get it right. So we kind of put these roadblocks in there on purpose to see if they'll work through it. But you've left the secret out now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> we don't blatantly tell them to use Google. We imply it really heavily when we're doing the initial phone call interviews because we want them to get, I mean, you have to get a 95% or higher. And I know that doesn't sound um, like 99% because it's not, but the tests are really hard and they're hard on purpose. We tell them to use every available tool they have access to because we need a 95. And everyone says they understand, and then we'll get test results back and they get like 68s. And it's kind of frustrating because Google knows the answer to almost everything. It does. Once in a while it takes more than a few searches and more than a few clicks, but usually the first result will tell you what you need to know. Yeah, and you know, not every file we get from our clients is easy. Some of them are going to be really difficult. We work with a patent law attorney and the terminology they use is insane. It sounds like they're speaking like an alien language and they're talking about parts of a cell phone or parts of a new laptop. And it, I, I've been using computers for, I don't know, 30 years. I've never even heard of some of this stuff. Well, I can imagine that would be quite a mountain to scale. You need some skilled people. You do. And I think people that call us and they say, you, you charge what? And I tell them, you know, that'll be $3 a minute if you want it back by tomorrow. And they say, well, I found this other place online that's 75 cents. I say, that's great. They're in the Philippines or they're in India. <laughs> and my folks are U.S. based. And most of them went to college. And if they didn't go to college, they've been doing trans, you know, financial transcription for 15 years. They know the terminology. They know the acronyms. They know what you're talking about. But the people you're going to send it to because it's 75 cents a minute, they, you're going to be editing that thing for hours because it's going to be really bad. <laughs> no. For better or worse, we usually get what we pay for. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it, and, you know, those companies that I'm, I'm talking about that are, that are much cheaper than us, they're like Walmart. You know, they do high volume at a really low price. And we, we don't do that. We're more like Neiman Marcus. We cost more, but it's perfect. And you know what you're getting. Yeah, you've found a niche, and I can only imagine the demand for that niche growing exponentially. Yeah, what happens usually is the people we work with will have tried voice recognition. They'll, they will have given up on that. Then they'll have their people typing. So let's say um, it's a bank in New York. And they need to transcribe their quarterly calls because of SEC requirements. 
Then they'll have someone in the bank typing, maybe a paralegal that works for one of the in-house counsel guys. That paralegal will get overwhelmed and isn't really a transcriptionist. She can do it, but it takes her a really long time. Then they come back around to us and they say, you know what, we'll pay three bucks a minute because it will be done by tomorrow at noon and it's going to be perfect and we can post it on our website and submit it to the SEC immediately. So it's usually, it cut, they come back around eventually. Yeah, if that's an SEC requirement, that alone should get you quite a bit of business. Yeah, the SEC requires a lot of different stuff from publicly traded companies that that you wouldn't know exists unless you're in it. I've only scratched the surface, and it's already too much for me. <laughs> I've heard that from people that took companies public. They said, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> All these you know, suits roll into town from New York or wherever their compliance people are, and then they're telling us how to run our business. Like, oh, yeah, that's not how we do that. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Are there any other topics you'd like to explore? Uh, no, not that I can think of. Did I answer all your questions thoroughly you and appropriately? Absolutely. It's a fantastic recording. Good. I suppose maybe some words of wisdom. Ah, public relations is very important as you try to grow a company. Um, and it, this is probably a really common answer, but having a coach or a mentor has helped me tremendously. Um, I have a coach that I meet with once a month and then I'm in a group that meets once a month and we get to help each other work through issues. And it, it's both are tremendous. It, it, it has helped me a lot because it's other small business owners that deal with a lot of the same issues. Um, and they have different perspectives because they're from different parts of the country they went to different schools, you know, they run different companies and deal with different people. So they see things from a different lens and it's been very helpful for me. And to have a coach, uh, my coach is Bill Treadwell here in Denver. He's in his early seventies. He's been there, done that. So I like listening and, and asking him questions because he's been very successful in his business life. So hearing it from someone who's done it, I don't know. I listen better, I think. Absolutely. We can post a link to his website in the blog post accompanying the podcast. And common pieces of advice are common for a good reason. Sometimes you have to hear something a thousand times before you finally do it. Yeah, I unfortunately learned the hard way too. So yes, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, Ben, it has been a pleasure, and I expect to have the recording up 
on the podcast tomorrow night. Oh, nice. Uh, send me a link so I can have one of my people transcribe it, and I'll send the transcript back to you. Okay. Sounds good.